Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So parts of our brains are active when we're experiencing emotional pain that are active when we're experiencing physical pain. That's why when we hear all these metaphors about how heartbreak hurts, it's actually real. Our brain processes it as physical pain. And in fact, the loss of love may be the single most devastating emotion that humans experience. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world-leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive, and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness, and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. On today's podcast, I have Florence Williams, who is a journalist, best-selling author, global speaker, and podcaster. She writes the New York Times, National Geographic, the New York Review of Books, and numerous other publications around the world. In this episode, we are going to be talking about her latest book. It's brilliant, it's heartwarming, and it's about heartbreak a personal and scientific journey. This book is a must read for anyone processing heartbreak, especially, but really it's such a human read that I found fascinating, no matter what you're experiencing in life. What I found so fascinating is actually understanding the true effect that heartbreak has on us. Why do we feel it so intensely and how can you move through it? Can it be sped up? How does it affect our health? All of these questions, Florence answers with such delicacy using cutting edge research into our biology. What is a favorite quote you return to often and why? A quote that's just popping into my head right now is one from early American psychologist William James, who says, don't believe everything you think. (laughs) Our minds have a way of telling us stories about ourselves and the world that just are not necessarily true. We should challenge those self-concepts often. I'm obsessed with William James. Would you say, and you probably know more about this than I do, he was kind of the godfather of psychology in many ways. That's right. He was so perceptive about so many topics. Uh, He himself suffered from depression. He really understood the power of nature to heal us. Uh, He was just so perceptive about so many things. And also so many years ago when he hardly had any data. I know. And a a funny thing that he writes about quite a bit is attention and how our attention gets so easily distracted. And of Mm. course, what's hilarious about that is (laughs) that our attention is now a million times more distractible, you know, than it was then. But but even in the 19th century, you know, it was a a challenge still to stay sort of on point (laughs) and to focus on things that were meaningful to us. What is a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? Uh, It's to slow down. 
It's to slow down. It's to, there's just a lot going on right now in my life. I'm selling my house. I'm moving. I'm packing. I have a daughter graduating from high school, uh, you know, work deadlines. And it's sort of unhappy making, right, to try to do everything at the same time. And so I try to remind myself to structure my day, (laughs) to structure my life and my thought process, to be able to do one thing at a time, not to multitask. It's a real luxury if I can do that. And I need to remind myself often. Oh God, don't we all, don't we all? I mean, the the fact that we, I have like four messaging apps open at the same time is really not. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bad sign, Poppy. (laughs) Close the apps. (laughs) How do you understand the soul? I understand the soul in the context of other souls. I feel like who we are soulfully is the way that we connect to each other and the way we feel that we're sort of one. You know, if if I think of the soul as being something spiritual and I think of spirituality as being sort of our place in the cosmos where we're constantly reacting and connecting and feeling related to each other. That's where I feel spiritual. You know, I haven't heard that answer given to me yet. And I'm kind of asking myself, I wonder why not? Because it feels so natural, actually, to think about our soul in context to others. So thank you for that. Um, It's given me lots of food for thought. And really on the subject of food for thought, wow, I mean, your book is like, a whole week of food for thought um, (laughs) that you just pack so much into it. And it's such a beautiful read, like weaving your personal story to the scientific discoveries that you had. So firstly, why did you want to share this story and research? What was your intention? It just felt really natural for me to do that. I think, you know, partly I'm a journalist and when questions arise in my own life, especially sort of urgent questions, I feel the need to research them and to find answers. And as a journalist, I also feel compelled to share those answers because I feel like other people are probably having similar questions and going through similar things in their lives. When I started to research the science of heartbreak, I was really fascinated and surprised, and I thought other people would be as well. The other thing that was going on was that I was really going through a hard time, losing so much of my identity, you know, which happens after a really long marriage ends. Who are you? Who are you outside of the context of this person? You're sort of almost desperate to cling to the parts of yourself that you still have. And for me, that was journalism. It's like, okay, this is what I do. This is who I am. I'm going to really lean into this because it's what I've got. And did you find the book incredibly helpful in healing what you were going through? Well, that's a complicated question because it took me you know, several years to write it. And I was trying to write a good book, not just a therapeutic book. And I think there's a real difference. Mm. It meant spending a lot of time you know, in these scenes, rewriting chapters, rewriting scenes, So I was actually kind of stuck for a while in the land of heartbreak, (laughs) you know, where it might have been kind of healthy to move on, you know, into other other distractions. And I was kind of stuck there. But when I finished the book, it felt incredibly therapeutic. It was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done with heartbreak. And although you never fully get to where you were, there's no like perfect closure. And that's a big lesson of the book. There was something about creating the narrative that had a beginning and a middle and an end. That was incredibly helpful. And of course, I talk a lot about meaning making and narrative making in the book. So 
So I did end up living some of that out. You write really beautifully. Our hearts had been beating tighter side by side through um, my entire adulthood, and then they weren't. How do our bodies sync up in a relationship? What happens biologically when we're falling in love? When we fall in love, our brains get super animated. You know, we become very energetic. There's a lot of kind of adrenaline and excitement. We might even forget to eat. We become really um, consumed with this person. We become full of lust. And also the flirtation kind of sets off other hormones in our bodies. Once we start touching, then there's oxytocin, which is a bonding hormone. Um, There's serotonin coursing through our brains, which is a really happy-making substance. But the other thing that happens actually is that it looks like when mammals fall in love, like prairie voles, who I study, and also humans, our brains seem to be preparing in a way for the stress of loss. So our brains actually make more of this stress machinery, this corticosone releasing factor, so that if there is a separation, and that's maybe not so adaptive to have a separation, especially if we have offspring, we kind of get stressed out, you know? And in prairie voles, that keeps us from finding another mate right away. We sort of want our partner to come back. And so we miss them. And so those stress machines are sort of in a way, they're loading the guns, getting ready uh, for what to do when our partner disappears. It's so interesting to think that we are so wired to fall in love. How do you think polygamy, from an evolutionary biological perspective, that happens? Because if we're kind of biologically wired to be with one person in some ways, would you agree with that or not? Not necessarily. I think most of us are biologically wired to pair bond, but there's a lot of adaptability and flexibility built in to our social structure and our social systems. And in fact, we have different brains and we have different receptors in different parts of our brains. So there are some voles, for example, that have more receptors in the parts of their brains that bond to have a memory with one partner. And there are other there are other voles that may have fewer of those receptors in that brain. So I think there are some people who are actually wired to stray. And there are some people who are wired, you know, not to be monogamous for a long time. And and probably all of us really ultimately are most wired to pair bond for a period of time and then maybe to have serial monogamy. That's maybe a common, you know, our, our social culture doesn't necessarily make a lot of room for that. But it could be that that's actually a natural way to be. I do find it interesting that obviously we've never lived this long, right? We're the first generation, arguably, to live as long as we have. And so when marriage, this construct of marriage was first set up, it didn't potentially take into account that we could be with someone for like 50 years plus, because we would have died. (laughs) Right. And as humans, we also like novelty. We like shiny new objects. And so sometimes that comes along in the form of another person. And that's why infidelity is hugely common in our our pair bonds. And that's true across other pair bonding mammals as well. What on earth happens when heartbreak happens to us biologically? And out of all the research that you did on this, what did you find most surprising? You know, I really enjoyed talking to Helen Fisher, who has scanned the brains of people on the other end of love, people who are experiencing heartbreak, especially people who have been dumped, (laughs) people who've been rejected in love. She's put them in a brain scanner and she has found that parts of their brains 
are active associated with craving and addiction. You know, we miss this person. We miss the security and the routine. We miss the sort of oxytocin and the serotonin. We feel this immediate depletion of those happy hormones. And what flows in instead is stress. Also, the parts of our brains are active when we're experiencing emotional pain that are active when we're experiencing physical pain. That's why when we hear all these metaphors about how heartbreak hurts, it's actually real. Our brain processes it as physical pain, but it's even more complicated than physical pain because we also are experiencing rejection. And humans are very, very socially sensitive. We're very hyper aware of what other people think of us. We are designed to be really unhappy if we feel that we're being, you know, compared to other people and passed over for other people or insulted or offended. We feel like our identities are lost and falling apart. We may feel this tremendous insecurity having to do with finances, having to do with all these arguments and you know, calculus of who's going to get the kids now, who's going to get the dog, where am I going to live, where am I going to get health insurance, big question for people in the United States. It's really, really complicated. And in fact, the loss of love may be the single most devastating emotion that humans experience. You look into the relationship between heartbreak and it being a precursor to inflammation, which I thought was fascinating. And I was wondering if you could share more a bit about that. Yeah, there's one psychologist who told me that divorce is a story of inflammation. (laughs) And I had never, of course, heard it phrased that way. That was one of the big surprises. I myself physically felt ill after the separation. I felt incredibly agitated, incredibly sort of just freaked out, you know, which is what happens when you've, you know, lost your primary attachment partner, this person who you felt safe with, who you envisioned a future with. Suddenly they're gone and you're like, oh my God. And, you know, I had been with this person since I was 18. So I'd never been on my own as an adult. I felt really freaked out. One of the researchers I spoke to specializes in studying the immune systems of people who feel lonely and people who feel isolated. This his name is Steve Cole at the University of California, Los Angeles. You know, we've known for a while that people who do feel lonely have a 26% increased risk of early death. They have higher rates of chronic diseases like metabolic diseases, cardiovascular diseases, even cognitive declines like Alzheimer's and dementia. And so he wanted to know why, like what is happening in our immune systems that's creating these chronic illnesses and early deaths. (laughs) And I wanted to know too. And in fact, I wanted to know what my blood looked like. And so we analyzed my blood. And what we found is that, in fact, I was upregulating genes for inflammation and downregulating genes for fighting viruses because viruses are spread in groups. And when we feel lonely and isolated, Our bodies and our brains don't make the distinction between feeling that way and being literally abandoned on the savannah, you know, with hyenas circling about to attack you. And so the inflammation is kind of an adaptive response, you know, if you are, in fact, really alone in the wilderness. But it's not so adaptive a response for modern life, especially in a pandemic when we need our immune systems to be able to fight viruses. And we don't want our immune systems pumping out long-term inflammation. We know that's related to chronic disease. Another kind of discovery you had was actually it having a physical effect on the heart. Yes. Heartbreak is not a metaphor 
it, it can be in some people, a literal condition. There's something called Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. It's a kind of heart condition that is often, not always, but often prompted by emotional distress, severe emotional distress. So 80% of people who get this kind of cardiomyopathy are older women. And they, you know, you see it after the death of a loved one or even after the death of a pet. Um, sometimes we see it in men after their cases in the literature, after their favorite soccer team or football team, you know, has lost <laughs> in the finals. What happens is that there's so many stress hormones, so much adrenaline sort of flooding the heart that the left ventricle balloons out and becomes unable to pump. It's about 5% of all hospital admissions for heart conditions are from this kind of heart attack or heart disease. It's just amazing how much impact our emotions have. The ancient Greeks would say, you know, like, how does your heart feel? What does your heart say? And I think we've kind of all rolled our eyes thinking that this is all quite just romantic language. And yet the science is now there to prove that how we feel and how our body is working is so deeply interconnected. I love it that this early um, doctor, Sir William Osler, at one point said, the tragedies of life are largely arterial. <laughs> As a doctor, he knew that. You talk about this in the book and you mentioned that heartbreak on average lasts around maybe like three years to recover. But actually after two, you were feeling a bit more whole again. What was insightful about, you know, how long heartbreak lasts and why yours was marginally, you know, quicker? Is that, do you think, based on how proactive you were into finding ways to heal it? I think so, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of lessons I learned about resilience and trying to get over it more quickly. But we know from sort of these like large data collections that after divorce, it actually takes about four years, believe it or not, for people's bodies, physiological systems to return to baseline. And there are some people, 15% of people really don't get over heartbreak. They stay depressed. They stay unhealthy. These are the ones who skew the statistics indicating that, that divorced people do, in fact, on average, die earlier than people who stay married or even people who never married. Uh, and in fact, people who are widowed. There's something about divorce itself that seems to put us even at higher risk of, of any other kind of social demographic. That's really concerning. And it's a reason to find urgent ways to feel better. I mean, you do not want to stay sick. You do not want to die younger. You do not want to stay depressed, you know, especially if you have kids and you have a job. And I mean, you know, there, people need you to be healthy and to recover. And so I was very, very eager to find ways to be resilient. One of the early psychologists I interviewed in the book and the research said to me, you know, yes, the statistics are pretty grim for people who are divorced, the health statistics, but we know that there are some people and some personality traits who are more resilient. And even if you're not naturally one of those people with that personality trait, you can actually learn to become more that way. And I got so excited and I leaned forward, you know, in my chair in her office in Utah. And I was like, please tell me, what is the secret? What is the personality trait that will make me recover more easily. And she said, this surprised me, the personality trait is openness. Wow. So people who are curious, people who are open to beauty, people who are open to awe, people who are able to sort of get excited and joyful by things like art. And that was wildly hopeful to me because I knew I was someone who was open to beauty 
I spend a lot of time in nature. I wrote this book, The Nature Fix, about how being in nature is so good for us. And here was yet more evidence that if we could learn how to become more open to awe, more open to beauty, um, it could actually help us recover from life's blows and tragedies. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. More quickly, and so that really determined the next. Like two years of, of writing my book, I was just determined <laughs> to find beauty and to find awe and to encourage other people to do the same. If you care about your skin looking as good as it can be, then this will be interesting for you. I'd love to introduce you all to Foreo, our incredible podcast sponsor and the world's leading skincare tech brand. Foreo believes self-confidence is key to everything because when you feel great, you look great. Investing in my skin is a vital part of my personal well-being and instantly boosts my mood. It's also my best kept beauty secret. I discovered a lunar cleansing device a few months ago and it's been incredible and massively helped me boost the glow in my skin with or without makeup. The lunar is clinically proven to remove 99.5% of impurities from the skin and is powered by T-Sonic technology with 8,000 pulsations per minute. Trust me, nothing else will get you even close to the cleanse you will achieve with a lunar device. For Rayo have partnered with Current Body, the beauty device experts, to offer Not Perfect listeners an exclusive 20% off all Forayo products for the month of July. To claim your discount, and it is a real massive discount, head to currentbody.com slash notperfect. And thanks again to Forayo for creating such effective products and being so generous with the discount they've shared. You have the three C's as also other helpful interventions in healing. And to be honest, in any sort of kind of like emotional recovery, I wouldn't say just say heartbreak. Would you mind taking us through the three C's? Yeah, sure. Ultimately, I felt like there were kind of these three categories to recovery uh, that are really adaptable, you know, to different people and different personalities. But the first is that you need to calm down. So the first C is calm because your nervous system is so agitated that's why you can't sleep. That's why you're not digesting food well. You're not going to be able to heal until you can sort of calm down. So however that is for you, whether it's through exercise or yoga or listening to music or petting your dog, <laughs> you know, or being with your friends, like prioritize the calm. And then the second C is connection. So connecting to other people in an authentic way, feeling less alone, 
doing what you need to to feel less alone. I, For me, I didn't have any close friends who were divorced. And I felt like I needed to go find some because I needed to be able to imagine myself into a viable future. So I wanted to find divorced people who I could relate to, but who could also sort of inspire me and be role models. And I wanted to connect to them and just not feel like I was, I was going through this, you know, by myself, but also connecting to nature, you know, for me was, was really important. And that gets back to that becoming more open to beauty and to joy, which I knew I could find by connecting to nature. And then the third C, well, it's not actually a C, the third one, the third one is purpose and meaning. So Again, that's that narrative making, the meaning making. What lessons can you take from this terrible experience so that you can have some post-adversity growth? How can you do better next time? Um, who do you want to be going forward? Instead of just dwelling on why did this happen to me or what happened, to start asking the questions of who do I want to be now? And how does this make me a better person so I can help other people too? Going straight to the third, the purpose and meaning, do you think that that has to come at its own time? Because when you are initially heartbroken, it's almost just so difficult to even kind of have that rationale to be able to ask yourself, who do I want to be? Let me just say that all of this has to happen on its own time. Mm. There is no predictable recovery timeline that will fit for everyone. You know, grief in general is such an idiosyncratic emotion. I mean, we all experience it differently and that's okay. I feel like there's so much pressure on us, you know, to sort of spend six months, you know, grieving, spend 12 months and then be done. And that's just not realistic. uh, And in fact, makes it harder. You need to really honor your own timeline and be patient because I guarantee you it's going to take longer than you think it's going to take. I know. And even though that's kind of like hard to hear, it's so true. And I, that's what I thought. I mean, I don't want to give away the ending of the book, but, you know, it's nuanced. It's not kind of, yes. you know, here's a guide because you're going to be a superstar by the end of it. It's uh, very much a healing journey that you take readers on, which feels deeply realistic and doable, which I actually find more helpful than uh, this idea that you can just erase heartbreak. Exactly. And in fact, I think one of the keys to resilience is to learning how to become a person who's not necessarily looking for closure, Mm. but who's more comfortable with the idea that there is no closure. Those are the people who are also more open to curiosity, more open to nuance, more open to mystery. Not everything has a tidy solution. And that's okay. That's life. That's being human. What didn't work? What really did you find was pretty ineffective in your heartbreak healing? Well, there's a certain advice that you hear (laughs) when you're divorced. And one of them is, um, oh, you need to learn to love yourself before jumping into another relationship. You need to really not do that. Don't rebound. Just take your time. Take six months for every year of your relationship, you know, to recover before you (laughs) have another relationship. And I was like, really? That would be 12 years. Like, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to wait 12 years. Sorry. And I was like, where's the science saying don't have another relationship? Where's the science? And, and there was no science. And in fact, there was science indicating the opposite, that the people who do rebound quickly after a heartbreak actually do better. 
they gain more self-confidence. They find more self-esteem after their self-esteem has been so demolished in the heartbreak. They are able to separate more quickly from their ex, you know, emotionally. Um, They're able to sort of move on. And of course, I'm not going to like recommend that everyone go out and do this. I mean, it's very, it's a very individual experience and you have to feel safe. But I do think that a little bit of distraction, a little bit of sex, you know, a little bit of feeling more self-confident, that's all really good for you. And new perspectives also are a great boost to, as you talk about in the book, create post-traumatic growth. In what ways do you feel, even now since writing the book, do you feel this experience is given to you? You know, honestly, Poppy, so many. And I, I never would have expected this, but I used to be someone who didn't spend a lot of time thinking about my emotions or looking deeply into my heart. And part of that is I was in a relationship that wasn't that great, you know, for those last few years. And I didn't want to look too deeply into my heart. It was easier just to sort of put my head down, do my work, do my parenting, get things done, be efficient, be sort of even keel be pleasant, not argue, you know, and heartbreak completely demolishes that notion (laughs) that you can be even keel. It just tears you down to the studs to the point where you have to acknowledge your big emotions as uncomfortable as that is. And what I found was that in feeling my feelings, I was also able to feel the positive feelings in this much more dramatic and colorful and amazing, beautiful way. So I was able to feel more joy occasionally, even while I was heartbroken. I was so blown away by the love of my friends, by my kids, by the natural world. I was just stunned by that. And that made me feel really alive and really vital. And like, you know, there could be a happier place, you know, to end up. So I became someone who was more comfortable with big emotions. And I, I, it's just too bad that our cultures and our societies don't really teach us that. They teach us to numb our emotions. They teach us to distract ourselves from them. But when we actually feel them, amazing things happen. It actually softens our heart and makes us more empathetic to other people experiencing big emotions, <laughs> makes us better listeners and makes us show up for the people in our lives and for our communities and maybe even for our world in a way that we're not, if we're not paying any attention. Ultimately, and sort of ironically, I feel like the heartbreak opens up your heart to be more capable of love if you're lucky and if you let that happen and if you're not afraid of it. And unfortunately, like I said, we're not really all very good at that. And that's part of the reason I wanted to write this book was to give people more tools, more hope, more encouragement that you have to do this really move through your emotions to get to the other side. I once read that humans only have two emotions, love and fear. And what are your thoughts about that? Because it does feel like heartbreak is this milkshake of fear (laughs) rushing through your bones. Yes. I feel like, um, uh, you know, when you talk about, when people talk about the stages of grief, Mm. Elizabeth Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, there's one that's missing. And that's anxiety. Mm. Uh, anxiety is fear, right? It's a kind of fear for what's about to happen that hasn't happened yet. I think anxiety is a huge piece of what I was going through, why my body was getting sick, why I was feeling what I was feeling. In the book, you touch upon rituals, about how rituals actually are so helpful in creating your own closure to these pretty impactful emotional moments. I'd love to talk about that. 
I think rituals are sort of undervalued when it comes to negative events. I mean, certainly we have rituals around death, but we don't have rituals around heartbreak. And if you think about it, a big heartbreak, it only happens to you maybe a couple of times in a lifetime. Mm. It's not super common, and yet it is universal. Mm. And so the rituals are important because they help us find meaning. They give us something to do. They help make this feel like this is actually a culturally common sanctioned kind of event in our lives. And, you know, ultimately, we think about what we want out of a ritual, which is kind of how we are able to think about moving forward. And so when I went to visit the Museum of Broken Relationships in Croatia, um, I really learned this. I learned the value of ritual because what happens in this museum is that people from around the world have sent in objects that are emblematic of their relationships at the end of their relationships. And they write these, you know, sort of one paragraph descriptions of what this object represents. And then the curators put these objects in beautiful glass cases. You know, it's all beautifully lit. People from around the world come and walk around. Uh, It's one of the most popular museums in Croatia because everyone can relate to these stories. And some of the stories are really funny. Some of them are really bizarre. You know, people send in just funny things. But there's also a lot of pain, you know, obviously. But there's something about that ritual of sending it in, you know, writing the paragraph that helps you, again, create that narrative that can be so helpful. You know, a little bit of meaning making and a little bit of just tapping into the universal current that is heartbreak that is in itself so healing. So I didn't send in an object, but when I got home, I knew I had this object, which was my wedding ring, actually. It was not a valuable wedding ring, (laughs) but it was a wedding ring nonetheless. And um, so I created this ritual where, uh, you know, rivers are really an important theme in the book and in my own life. Um, So I took my wedding ring and I put it in this little boat made out of lettuce. And I went down with two really close friends one beautiful spring day. And we sent my wedding ring adrift down the Potomac River to a new watery future. It felt like a a meaningful ritual to me. And when when I read it, I found it incredibly um, heartwarming. And I loved the story that you shared about a woman pawning her (laughs) wedding ring and then just giving the money to the next homeless person that she bumped into, (laughs) which again, I I thought was just so, so, so sweet. Um, I would love to touch upon um, your other brilliant book, The Nature Fix, because you look into detail the science behind why nature has this healing impact on us. What is the science of awe and how does nature fit into that? Yeah, awe is such an interesting emotion. Uh, It's one of the least studied of the so-called positive emotions. Uh, And yet it seems to have very significant effects on our psyches when we experience it. There's been some science just recently showing that when we look at pictures, for example, of a waterfall or of a whale jumping in the ocean, we feel like our own egos are a little bit smaller. In fact, even in laboratories, we'll draw our figure as being smaller than if we draw our figure after we look at a street, you know, (laughs) or a shopping mall. Um, We'll give away more lottery tickets. We'll donate more to charity. We act in ways that are more community-oriented and less kind of self-directed, less personally ambitious uh, when we're in the presence of awe. And so that's probably why, you know, religions, are, you know, have tapped into these like 
very beautiful cathedrals and beautiful music and beautiful ritual because we feel more a part of the universe and a part of each other when we experience awe. The other thing I found out, which was really interesting, is that when we experience awe and our own sort of egos become a little smaller, we also are trying to understand what we are experiencing. Like our brains can't easily fit awesome sights into, you know, our existing kind of schema. Like when we suddenly see a full moon on the horizon or when we a butterfly or an owl flies in front of us, we instant our brain just stops. It stops whatever, you know, the soundtrack is in our thinking brains. And we're just trying to take this in. In fact, we open our eyes, we raise our eyelids, we sometimes our jaw drops because we're surprised and we're trying to understand what this beautiful thing is. Or sometimes a fearsome thing. I mean, sometimes awe is like a, you know, a tornado or a hurricane. But our brains are just putting all their energy into trying to understand this. And so there's this funny little cognitive opening that we think we can take advantage of. So if, for example, if we're in the wilderness or on a corporate retreat or something, there's this open window to learn something new. And if we're asking the right questions, we can ask ourselves who we want to be now. What do we want to learn? Who can we be moving forward? There are ways to maybe sort of game that window to actually shift your perspective in a way that can be really healing. I'd love to talk to you about obsessive thoughts because in one study, people that walked around the park had less obsessive thoughts. And obviously during the heartbreak process, I mean, I can speak from kind of anecdotal experience. I obsess over the person. (laughs) Yes. Why does heartbreak turn us into such obsessive thinkers and how can nature help slightly make that more gentle? I mean, there's one study that showed that people who have been rejected in love end up thinking about their departing love 85% of their waking hours. (laughs) You know, it's because we have these really sensitive brains to social dynamics and to rejection. Mm. And so we're just like chewing it, chewing it, chewing it. Not everybody does this. You know, some people just seem to kind of skate on, but many of us do uh, ruminate, ruminate, ruminate. And of course, excessive rumination is linked to depression ultimately. So you don't want to do it forever. What nature does is it kind of pulls us out of that. Like we may be ruminating, 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 but then, oh, we hear a bird call or suddenly there's, you know, a wild animal or, you know, there's a particularly beautiful blossom that we just can't help. Like our brains also are drawn to that. And it just like interrupts that rumination a little bit. It also creates just like more oxygen flow in different parts of our brains so that we maybe are able to think a little more creatively. Our sensory brain kind of wakes up and and that seems to help us, you know, also just feel a little more grounded. We might feel like we're seeing the cycles of nature too. Like, yes, things change. Things are supposed to change and things will change for me too. This has been so interesting and I encourage everyone to um, find uh, your book, Florence. So how could people find you? What's the best way to either find your books or just even to ask you further questions based on what people read? Oh, thanks for asking, Poppy. Yeah, my website's really easy. It's just florencewilliams.com. There are links in there to social media sites, um, links to my audio we made this really cool audio book about heartbreak too. If your listeners like listening to audiobooks, where we, we layered in like actual sound from 
boyfriends and my psychologist and my psychotherapist, my best friends, um, you know, nature. So yeah, you can find everything starting from there. Okay, perfect. We'll put we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. And this was so interesting. And I'm feeling a lot calmer um, afterwards than when I did the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Thanks, Poppy. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with bowl and branches organic cotton sheets in a recent customer survey 96% replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details